0: Hello, oh, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Justin Samard, a visiting assistant professor at Willamette University College of Law. We will discuss his article, Citing Slavery, which will be published in the Stanford Law Review. So
1: welcome to the show, Justin. Thanks. It's great to, great to be on the show.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I absolutely love this article. And I want to give a shout out to uh, Lizette Pinot at the Yale Law Journal, who recommended it to me as something I should read and think about inviting you on on the podcast. And I'm so pleased that it's going to be coming out in the Stanford Law Review because it's really a fantastic piece. So
1: congratulations, Justin. Thanks. And i also like to second those those thanks to Lizette.
0: I was wondering if we could start by you y- just talking a little bit about you know, the, the kind of background subject matter of the article. I mean, what does it mean for a court to cite slavery, and when and why does it happen?
1: So um, the rare a citation to a slave case is pretty simple, which is basically any case in which um, – a slave case is any case in which – uh, involves an enslaved person um, as a piece of property, um, and um, a citation to slave case is just what it sounds like—a citation to one of these cases that involves uh, that treats a slave, uh, enslaved person as a piece of property.
0: Mm. So, how did you actually go about identifying places in which this happened, or or cases in which sl- citing slavery was? taking place? In other words, like, what was your methodology for this article?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, I'm normally a historian working in the archives and stuff, and I thought this project would be a little easier to do, but it turned out to be actually really difficult because there's a lot more of these citations uh, than I expected to find. So I started off by just searching, uh, modern cases which i define as cases in the last 35 years for, um, words like slave. Um, to see when there's sort of direct citation to these cases. And I found uh, a lot of cases, of course, involved filtering out a lot of other um, cases with facts where someone says, oh, I, um, I'm treated like a slave or that sort of thing. Um, and I also uh, put aside cases related to the reconstruction amendments because obviously that, that was a little different situation. And then I went back to state-by-state uh, state looking at every um, just searching for Basically, slave and other variations, um, and then sorting by in Westlaw or Lexis by the most cited cases, and then I would go through, go through, do the um, shepherds or whatever, uh, and look and see if there are any cases that cited that case um, in the last thirty-five years. And so it turns out it takes a long time to sort through um, these cases because another uh, scholar has realized um, there's something like eleven thousand um, slave cases. Uh, that that were authored in the 19th century.
0: Mm -hmm. So is there like a comprehensive list of slave cases that you could work with in putting together the data set that you use for this article? Or was this something you had to sort of cobble together on your own?
1: I had to cobble it together. So there's a a publication that had a four or five volume publication um, that has a bunch of, that's collected a bunch of these cases um, but this other scholar I was mentioning, I actually got in touch with her. Um, uh, and she, uh, Jenny Wild, she's at, uh at Carleton. Uh, she's an economist. And she said, well, she actually worked with the, re- the printed copies of the reporters and didn't keep like a database. There's no published database or anything. So I sort of had to re engineer it uh, myself.
0: Well, I mean, you, and you identified what seems to be a kind of shocking number of contemporary cases that cite to decisions from the antebellum period around slaves as property as good precedent. I mean, do you think you caught all of them or are there even more out there than you found?
1: I don't know more out there. So I found about, um, I'm still working on the final count. Um, but I found a, um, Between 250 and 300 examples of this, Uh, I'm sure there are more out there, Um, in part because my search methodology was imperfect, in part uh, because sometimes there are cases about enslaved people that don't mention the word uh, slave. So, for instance, it's an inheritance case, and unless the reporter mentions that some of the inherited property um, is human property, there's no way for me to know that that's a, a slave case. So, I think, um, you know, if anything, uh, my research understates the, the frequency of this happening.
0: Okay. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about when and why contemporary courts are citing cases as precedent that involve people as property, like when they're citing slave cases, and why you think that matters.
1: So, What's amazing about it is it's not just um, found in one area of law. Um, It's sort of in every area of law you can imagine, property law, contract law, evidence, criminal law, procedure, many, many uh, different um, subject matter areas. And the citations uh, differ um, depending on uh, the reason the court is citing. I mean, oftentimes, Almost all the time, it's not a direct, um, there's not a direct acknowledgement that this case is a slave case. So it'll be you'll find in, a, say, uh, a, a string citation where there's a case about a boat, case about a car, case about a horse, and then a case about a person. And if you were just reading that case, uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't know that this uh, court was citing a case about an enslaved person. Um, other times courts draw out long, detailed analogies. Um, And and they're citing these cases oftentimes for very fundamental uh, definitions or principles of law. So uh, just to give an example, uh, there's this case, uh, Tire Shredders. It's a 1999 case in the Tennessee Court of Appeals. It's about uh, someone had rented some tire shredding machinery to shred boats, which apparently is a thing you can do. Um, And uh, the machinery caught on fire in some sort of industrial accident. And so the Tennessee Court of Appeals Faces the question What damages are available For injury to personal property And they sort of very proudly state In this opinion uh, We found the first case In which uh, the Supreme Court of Tennessee Laid out the standard And the case is Johnson v. Perry It's an 1841 case Um, And the property in that case Was a person named David Um, And uh, He Basically, he uh, got into an altercation with a group of white men who uh, threatened him and wanted to, quote unquote, chastise him, which at that time period, you know, chast- this is a real danger to his life. And I think David perceived it as such. He uh, fled this group of men, jumped off this four foot tall precipice uh, into a creek to try to um, escape and end up uh, severely injuring his leg. And, of course, he has no right to recover uh, from this injury, but his owner sues this group of men for um, damages. And then, in that case, the Tennessee Court of Appeals sort of lays out what damages are available. Um, And, uh, you know, 1999, the Tennessee Court of Appeals cites it um, just because this is where, you know, the first case um, that really establishes this rule in Tennessee
0: Mm, mm. So a distinction you draw in your piece, which I thought was really kind of interesting and powerful, and kind of perspective changing in a sense, was between the "quote unquote" law of slavery and the sort of general law. And what was surprising to me initially, but probably shouldn't have been, was the extent to which so many of the slave slave cases are not really kind of formally about the law of slavery, but seemed to have been about the general law. I mean, I wonder if you could sort of talk about that a little bit, about why you think that matters.
1: Right. Um, so it actually, um, in some of my other uh, purely historical work, I write about uh, how the role that lawyers play in um, sustaining the slave-based economy. And it turns out that a lot of the work that lawyers are doing, the most important work to maintaining slavery, is not sort of drafting the fundamental law of slavery or fugitive slave cases or Dred Scott, the stuff we t- normally tend to concentrate on. Mostly what they're doing is greasing the wheels of commerce. And the tools that um, Northern lawyers apply to uh, cases about normal forms of property are perfectly um, useful to Southern lawyers. Um, and some Northern lawyers who are working with uh, slave commerce. And as a lot of other uh, historians uh, have realized, uh, this commercial aspect of slavery is really important to making a, um, uh, to having made it a sustainable institution. Um, and so part of what my work seeks to do is to widen lawyers' perspective to realize that uh, this co- commercial work Is just as vital to uh, slavery as the Fugitive Slave Act.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really struck me was the way in which it was almost like the normalization of slavery that happened in the 18th and 19th century, like almost like weirdly seems to have survived the Civil War and the 13th Amendment and. Reconstruction and civil rights and everything, and have this weird kind of afterlife in contemporary law that you're identifying.
1: Yeah, thanks. It's a really nice way of putting it. I mean, because lawyers didn't classify these um, commercial cases as quote unquote slave cases, they just classified them as, you know, regular contracts cases or property cases or what have you. They never uh sort of fully came to grips with the way this commercial law uh, was critical to slavery and so there's this case in 1871 in the u.s supreme court where someone who had taken out a loan to purchase a person um, stopped paying the loan after emancipation and uh the creditor sued him and said you need to pay back this loan um and the Supreme Court held, essentially, that yes, he did. And uh, they acknowledged a little bit uh, that the, the society that they, uh, that within which this loan uh, was made had totally changed, but yet they weren't willing to reflect that in their opinion. They said, look, this is just, um, this is just like railroad script that is no longer valuable, right? And so just because this form of property doesn't exist anymore, it, contracts are contracts. And part of uh, right that, that that failure of transitional justice, I think, is still with us today, and not only um, in these direct citation of slave cases, but more generally, I think uh, the legal profession needs to grapple with the the role it played in um, you know this this tragic history.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, so you identify multiple reasons why this is a problem, but I want to kind of take them. Siri Adam, <laughs> as it were. And, and and so, you know, one of the things you point out is that there are sort of like kind of formal legal reasons why citing slave cases might be a problem, might be a mistake, might not sort of properly be doing the work that courts want them to do or might not reflect the meaning that courts think that they do. Why do you think that is? I mean, from a sort of formal perspective, why should courts and lawyers avoid citing to slave cases?
1: Well, so a first major reason is it's these cases have all been abrogated, at least in part, by the 13th Amendment. Right? Arguably, if we were to have these, if these cases were before the court again now, um, the enslaved people would need to be party to the cases, right? So, That, you know, set that aside, because that sort of, um, you know, clouds all of these cases. But also, um, there's it's unclear precedent. So, in any case, it's unclear uh, whether this case should be treated as um, an example of if the the enslaved person in the case should be treated as a, a Property or person. So this comes up, say, in slave hiring cases. Are those uh, cases uh, relevant for um, you know hiring out of uh, you know animals? and I mean, some courts have cited them like that, or are they cases uh, for employment law? Um, and and some courts have cited them like that. And so uh, that that uh, you know is makes these unclear. And if you don't recognize their slave cases, you're going to miss that. And the second. Um, major problem, I think, is one of the reasons we lie in cases is because we trust that the prior court's reasoning. But, um, you know, courts in these, especially later in the 19th century, are really part of the infrastructure that's trying to hold on to slavery as the abolition movement is growing. So how much can we trust that these white men who benefited from the practice themselves and oftentimes are... Um, went on to play important roles in Confederate government were not just manipulating roles, manipulating holdings to get to what they wanted, uh, sort of motivated reasoning to get what they wanted. And finally, um, these cases grew out of a slave regime uh, and have to be differentiated from them in some way. And I I think courts almost all the time don't even attempt to differentiate and sort these out. Like how... um, how can you really separate a slave commerce case um, from this white supremacist regime? Um, And uh, I'm not sure. I mean, but I certainly know that it would take more than just citing this case in the string citation.
0: Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that really struck me about your article was the way that like you point out how, courts cite to these slave cases as if they're just property cases or just commercial law cases, but don't acknowledge the fact that the ideology of slavery suffuses the decision-making process. And so like, in a sense, it's like they aren't good precedent because they're, they're like tainted by the desire to normalize slavery.
1: Right. I mean, you know, if you read these opinions carefully, there's all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, offensive assumptions, um, ra- racist language. Um, you know, it's just very clear that they're steeped in a white uh, a white supremacist regime. And how you separate that out uh, from the, the rule of the case, I- I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so like... You not only point to this sort of formal problem, but you you also talk about a sort of normative problem in citing to and sort of um, recognizing these slave cases as as precedent and as binding. Can, Can you talk about that normative problem as well? I mean, you know, why shouldn't? courts and lawyers cite to these cases um, as sort of like, you know, why is it wrong to do that? And why should we, why should we like sort of avoid citing to cases, even if they happen to provide some sort of, you know, potential like citation hook?
1: Right. Well, I mean, lawyers... whether they do it explicitly or not, i recognize that law has symbolic power. Right. And, um, part of what you're doing when you're writing a brief or, um, writing an opinion is you're telling the story and, you know, the story that these judges are telling, um, when they're writing these opinions is that we care about one kind of history, namely doctrinal history, but we don't care about another kind of history. Um, Namely, the history of slavery in this country, and and, and white supremacy and racism, and, and I just think the 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 message that courts are send, sending is just really terrible, um, you know. And I think, and if you're just sort of you know you don't care about that, and you're just a lawyer trying to make an argument, well, it makes it, it makes these cases less persuasive. Um, yeah. every every lawyer knows you don't cite a case bad facts even if the holding is good for you right? Um, when you're writing a brief or whatever else and this this is that same thing and you know I I felt weird making this that argument um, because for me the dignitary harms are just so clear and strong but part of what I've tried to do in this article thanks to pushback I've received is to really explain that citing these cases not only is a problem for people like me who care about legal history but it's just a problem if you're a lawyer trying to do your job.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I I, I, I got to say, like, I, I, why do you think this happens? Because, I mean, I can say from like personal experience, like for example, when I was clerking, right? And I came across cases that involved slavery. Like I personally just discounted those, frankly, for precisely the reasons that you identify and because I just felt like this is obviously that's like we can't rely on this because this is a bad thing <laughs> right? And, and, and like why don't people see that? I mean what's happening?
1: Right Well so um, you know initially when I sort of uh, uh, talked with this article, I, I presented it a few places, you know I, I sort of had a bunch of different reasons which I'll get into, but one of the reasons which, someone pointed out to me, which is clearly obvious is maybe some of these judges are just okay with it. You know, some of these judges are maybe lost cause people, you know, and, and I think it's, we really need to look that possibility in the eye and consider that, you know, maybe there are just judges who don't care about this stuff. Right. Um, but I think also, uh, it could also, I think some of these citations, judges, um, don't even realize that they're slave cases, um, because, if you get, you can get to the holding of a case without ever really paying attention to the facts thanks to some legal research tools, right? And I think there's a decent chance that somebody does this research and uh, ends up in a string citation and no one ever really understands what they're actually citing, which, side note, says some very interesting things about citation practices. Um, You know, I think also... Part of it is maybe a failure of the way that we're teaching law students, uh, the way we're professionalizing people, um, and, and people are professionalized after they go to law school. Um, you know, what matters are the rules, not the facts around it. You know, and I've, I've had that reaction by some lawyers, uh, you know, uh, some, and even some uh, um, legal scholars. Someone once said, you know, raised his hand when I present this and said, Who cares? Who cares? What does it matter? The rule, you know, slavery is gone. The rule is still good law. What, what's the difference? Um, and so I think there is some of that attitude um, in the bar. Um, and, and also uh, part of the, to uh, part of what I want to do, and I suggest this in the article, to address the accidental uh, citation, is I think that Westlaw and Lexus should have a symbol. So, you know, not only is this case, you know, the dubious authority because it has a yellow flag. But also because it involves slavery, and that you, you need to consider that um, when you're when you're you know working with it as, as an as a practicing lawyer.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love that suggestion, and and I can't help but asking, like, what do you think that should look like? Like, I mean, to the extent that Westlaw and Lexis could do something like that, what should they do? And like, what kind of symbol should they use to identify? These cases, so that people understand what they're doing when they make the decision whether or
1: not to cite to them. No, I mean, I I think, um, as it's just in the article, I think it should just be a symbol, just like it is for a case being, um, you know, yellow flag or red flag or whatever. I think uh, just a symbol like that, because I I like that idea uh, for a couple reasons. One, um, for preventing people from accidentally citing these cases if that is, in fact, what's happening. But also, I think it would just be informative for people who are doing research uh, to be reminded that uh, this case, which maybe they weren't going to cite anyway, is a slave case. Because I think, I mean, these cases are such a fundamental part of American jurisprudence. And I think, you know, that's sort of a little bit of public education every time you search for a case and see, you know, a, a, a symbol next to it.
0: mm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so I wanted to return really quickly to something you just mentioned, which was this response that people seem to have had to your paper and to this problem more generally. That, like, well, it, you know, it doesn't matter; slavery doesn't exist, and these are just cases like any other case, expressing legal rules. Like, I mean, I mean, could could, could, could you walk listeners through why that's just wrong? As a matter of legal reasoning, like, I mean, one of the big takeaways for me from your paper was that, you know, slavery, like, bends the law in a way. And like, why should that matter for the way that courts and lawyers think about historical
1: cases? So let me just give you one example, going back to the tire shredders case again. So in that case, um, the court ends up uh, not relying on tire shredders because they, they distinguish it by saying, well, this um, tire shredding machinery is commercial property that is difficult to replace, and so therefore that line of cases shouldn't apply. But in the 19th century, enslaved people are commercial property that is difficult to replace, and if you don't have that understanding of the history, you end up citing these cases that, even if you're okay citing them, aren't even on point, right? It's just not, it's flawed precedent. And you can go through, I mean, and I do in the article a little bit, go through a lot of different reasons why these cases don't stand for what a judge in the 21st century citing them thinks they stand for.
0: Mm hmm. Mm, yeah, no, ab- ab- absolutely. And I, I mean, for me, that's just. After you say it, it's so clear. And yet, I think it's so easy for people to miss that reality that, in a sense, we don't fully understand the context surrounding those cases anymore because they were so embedded in the ideology of slavery, kind of overdetermining what the judges deciding them were thinking and doing.
1: Right, exactly. And this is and this is part of the reason why um, you know, if I can get in my soapbox for a second here, is why I think we need to um, rethink the way that we approach professional responsibility um, and and teach not only um, you know the sort of model rules but also help lawyers think about the role that they're playing within society. I think in history, I think, can play a very important role in lawyers seeing not only um, what lawyers have done in the past, but what lawyers are doing now. And I think that context um, is is critical to being a, a, a practicing ethical lawyer.
0: So, Justin, I mean, you – you point to a lot of circumstances and reasons why lawyers and judges shouldn't cite to slave cases. Are there contexts in which you think they should do so, and if so, why and how?
1: Part of the danger, I think, of uh, not just saying having a rule against citing slave cases is that it doesn't solve the problem all the way. I mean, it solves some of the problem and solves some of the dignitary harms, but it doesn't solve the fact that, um, our law is built on the law of slavery. Um, and actually the, the next project I'm working on is showing how called not citing slavery is showing how even cases that don't cite slavery directly are one or two uh, citations removed from a slave case. So it's really a fundamental part of our law. Um, But as far as how a judge can approach uh, these cases, there actually have been a few judges who I think um, have done a good job recognizing the context of the case or at least started to move in that direction. Um, My my basic thinking is that as a judge who wants to cite these cases for whatever reason, maybe it's the only holding on point, although I'm skeptical that that's really often the the case, but um, you need to address The legal and dignitary arms um, that I mentioned. So, you need to really think through does the context of this case affect things? Does um, this case really stand for what it seems to be standing for? And really read it very carefully. Of course, these are things that judges and their clerks should be doing anyway, but that's a, um, you know, they're they're, they're clearly not. Um, Or least they don't have the training that allows them to understand these cases in context. And then you need to address the dignitary harms. And judges, I think, have done a little bit better job of this. Uh, Sometimes uh, just in a smattering of cases, I found a few judges who have said things like, you know, recognize that this is a tragic er um, uh, period in history, recognize that. um, And some of them have actually said, I'm not citing this case. The parties want to cite this case. I'm not going to rely on his authority because it doesn't apply anymore. It's about slavery.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I like the way that you use uh, Chief Justice Roberts's repudiation of Korematsu as sort of an example of how courts might think about acknowledging the problem a flawed perhaps example, but at least an example of how courts might think about acknowledging the reasons why we wouldn't want to sort of look to these cases as precedent. I mean, I wonder about the possibility of courts citing the cases as slave cases though. I mean, are there contexts in which it might be like the right thing to do precisely because of what they mean as opposed to sort of ignoring what they mean?
1: I mean, certainly I think – so I opened the piece uh, with a um, citation – an analysis of a citation in a recent Supreme Court dissent by Justice Thomas in which he cites a slave case basically to justify judicial power. Um, I think um, actually you should should be citing these cases for the exact opposite. Judicial humility – um, the recognition that um, uh, you know judges might not always have the right answers that we you know we as legal professionals might be involved in things that we don't understand that um, that they're real effects and so I think it's a reminder for all of us to be um, have humility about the limitations of our profession and um, the the risks and dangers of just sort of... Charging forward um in the way that lawyers I think are sometimes uh apt to do
0: mm, mm. so so Justin, I mean, in closing, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the dignitary harms that you identify because I mean for me, this is sort of something that maybe the legal profession has a bit of a blindness to And, you know, like, like maybe just sort of talk a little bit about why you think this is such a problem, not just a legal problem, but sort of a moral and normative problem.
1: Sure. I mean, Part of it, I think, is that there's this, the way we socialize lawyers um, is it sort of just like toughen up. You know, that's the response to these very human feelings. I mean, I think this is part of the reason why a lot of 1Ls feel alienated, because uh, they're trained to think in a certain way that narrows uh, narrows them down and removes the context. Um, but I think that that human instinct to see this as being somewhat um, – you're losing something important um, – is a real is, is something we should really pay attention to, and that um, you know we shouldn't let our sort of professional standards get in the way of our moral instincts. Um, I, I think this is, uh, you know, and I, I think we should condemn lawyers in the nineteenth century, northern lawyers who are um, against slavery or at least you know uh, opposed opposed to it in some small way, for still being part of this system that really. Uh, um, you know, they they helped by you know, help working with these southern lawyers or working in the South themselves, extending loans, that sort of thing um, support this system and I, and I think uh, you know it's, it's very important for lawyers to consider the context of these cases um, and to think um, especially in a profession that is still very un, unrepresentative um, and that has as you know lots of other scholars have demonstrated, Severe inequitable impacts on African Americans in the United States that this is something that is really important for us to um, address. And you see in a lot of other areas, businesses, churches, universities have come to um, have begun to grapple with their uh, links to slavery's legacy. And I think it's time for lawyers to do the same thing.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, Justin, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about this excellent paper. And congratulations on uh, publishing it in the Stanford Law Review.
1: Well, thanks. It's uh, been wonderful talking to you as well. And uh, yeah, uh, look for one plug before I end here. I'm actually going to be putting all of these cases on a website. It should be coming out uh, around the time when the article comes out uh, so that other scholars and the public can see what it really looks like to cite slavery. So that'll be uh, www.citingslavery.org.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Justin.